0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You
1: know, one of the side effects of the pandemic has been the quiet, Remember how quiet it was on the streets in late March and well into April? Hardly any traffic, hardly anyone even outside for that matter. Well, it also meant a reduction in marine traffic, not as many ships on the water. And that offered researchers a very unique opportunity to look at what the impact potentially could be of noise pollution and what happens when it's not there anymore. We want to find out what they learned. Well, joining us now is Dr. Richard Dewey, the Associate Director of Science at Ocean Networks Canada. Good morning, Dr. Dewey. Good morning. This sounds like it was a very unique research opportunity.
2: Absolutely. This is uh, actually a sort of an unplanned experiment, if you like, uh, that we were all primed to uh, be ready for, but uh, didn't anticipate. So we're very, we're welcome and glad to take advantage of the opportunity.
1: Was there a lot of pivoting at that point when when researchers realized, oh, wait a minute, look what's happening. We have to, we have to study this.
2: That's right. So there's actually a, a large international group called the Quiet Ocean Experiment. And they've been waiting in some sense for years for any opportunity that would look uh, uh an opportunity where the shipping would be reduced or there would be a change of policy at shipping lanes um, and get ready to do experiments. And this came along and this is really on a global scale.
1: So it didn't take long for them to pivot.
2: That's right. So we were sort of ready for it and uh, we were collecting the data already Although we didn't know the the economic shutdown would happen, but we were collecting the data because we're doing research in the ocean on on all sorts of aspects of sound in the in the ocean. Mm-hmm. And then this opportunity came along and researchers jumped right on it.
1: So you had the before, right? You know what things were like with all the noise pollution and the marine traffic. What did you see with the That's after? Right.
2: So what we were seeing was, in fact, uh, the Port of Vancouver is an excellent example. Uh, What we were seeing was an immediate shutdown or a reduction in some of the shipping and for the Port of Vancouver, China, it turns out, is a very significant trading partner. And as much as 30% of the cargo uh, import and export from Vancouver is destined for China. So we actually started to see a, a reduction in the shipping from China as early as early 2020. And that continued as the economic shutdown advanced so we were seeing a uh, reduction of the big ships these are the container ships we've seen mm-hmm. those uh, container ports um, but that extended across other other uh, disciplines as well or other uh, vessel types we we saw obviously a reduction in the bc ferries we saw a complete uh, stopping of the cruise ships so there was a reduction uh, that started early in the year and then continued into march and april
1: so did that have an impact on marine mammals
2: Absolutely. Well, we, we we are hoping it has an impact on marine mammals. But what we were able to quantify is the fact that it was it showed up as a direct reduction in the amount of shipping noise in the in the Salish sea, which is again, as you pointed out, we there were less ships on the surface, so there would have been less noise, and we actually quantified uh, we started to quantify that reduction of sound in the ocean.
1: So, what do you look for now? So, what is it? A diff- difference in behavior? Difference in how they move? Like, what are you looking for?
2: Right. So that's, the, that's the, the key part of the research right now is to actually then translate what we're hearing, a reduction of shipping noise in the ocean by perhaps early in the year was as much as uh, a half. And in April, redu- reduced uh, sound was by as much as f- a factor of four. So about a 75% reduction in the low frequencies generated by noise. And what we've been looking for is we'd actually be hoping that the, the whales and the marine mammals that use sound would actually be able to uh, forage better, search for prey, communicate within the pod, for example, for southern resident killer whales uh, more effectively. And this can only be a good thing. Unfortunately, in some sense, the southern resident killer whales haven't returned yet from their winter foraging grounds offshore. So in some sense, they've sort of missed the the earlier quieter period. But we Mm -hmm. are anticipating their return any time.
1: So th- this sounds like it's also a longer-term project, Dr. Dewey. Like, you may not really fully impact until you can do a before, after, and then another after when things get back to in normal. In some
2: sense, that's correct. So we, we do have quite a bit of data, obviously, before the, the economic shutdown, and we're collecting data now, and in fact, we're uh trying to install more hydrophones. We're trying to get a hydrophone in Burrard Inlet, for example, and we're trying to uh, work with other researchers that have hydrophones in the Salish Sea. And we're all monitoring the data to quantify this, and we're actually listening for the return of the southern killer whales. Now, the trick will be, can we distinguish a behavioural change? Will we actually quanti- be able to quantify the fact that they, they are able to forage better? Yeah. But I think something we might look for is if they, they do have critical habitat areas, which we know uh, are important to them. And some of these are very near shipping lanes, uh, for example, along San Juan Island in Haro Strait. And if the whales tend to hang out in their critical zones uh, more and are finding the salmon that they need to feed on uh, more efficiently, then that can only be a good thing.
1: Can we tell if they're communicating more? I mean, if it's quieter well, for them out there, or are they talking that, to each other that's, more? That's right. We'll,
2: we'll be quantifying. We'll try to, to listen to that and record that um, and see if when they're near the hydrophones, uh, whether they're, they're more chatty, uh, they're, they're using echolocation, if we can hear them from further away. So one of the ideas is that perhaps uh, we usually can hear them when they're within, you know, maybe half a kilometre to a kilometre. Can we hear them when they're even further away, which would be this indication that they're able to communicate over longer distances and then are probably uh, being more effective in their communication.
1: So when do you think you'll be able to tell something or have something concrete about what we've learned?
2: Well, I think it's going to, to be one of these things that we'll see how long the economic shutdown proceeds. Um, we're starting to get back a little bit more. The ferries are increasing a little bit. We still don't have a lot of the tourist uh, sectors uh, vessels on the water. The cruise ships, for example, uh, some of the cru- some of the container ships are starting yeah. to come back. Um, but nonetheless, we'll be monitoring this throughout the whole period. And even if there's a reduction of um, a factor of two, which would be quite significant, it would be like us uh, being going from a, a, a noisy pub or a noisy environment, a train station, airport, into a quieter environment. And uh, we all know that that's, that reduces your stress. Um, And if it allows them to find the salmon that will be returning soon to the Fraser River, uh, they'll they'll be healthier going into next winter. So it's a long term game for the for the southern resident killer whales. Um, One could hope, I guess, in the very long term that if they forage better this year are healthier, then maybe next year we see more calves. And if those calves survive, uh, going out two or three years then we could say that really there was a, a significant impact. But obviously that's a very long game, and we'll just have to wait to see if that that occurs.
1: Well, fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for your time.
2: You're very welcome.
1: That's Dr. Richard Dewey, Associate Director of Science at Ocean Networks Canada. They, researchers all over the world, as you heard him say, are taking advantage of the reduction in marine traffic because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And they're hoping that they can measure the impact on marine mammals, particularly those southern resident killer whales, which everyone has been so concerned about population-wise over the last few years. Fascinating story.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Things seem to be going in reverse for a number of states south of the border today. Bad couple of days of COVID-19 numbers has led to orders to close bars or places that serve alcohol in, in Texas, in Florida, parts of California as well. It is a resurgence of the worst kind. To talk more about this, we're joined by Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Boy, these numbers are not good. Are they expecting it to stay high like this today as well? Yeah, look, the numbers are
3: kind of expected to stay where they are for the time being. And especially heading into another long weekend, there's a fear that we could see kind of several more weeks of this increase uh, in positive cases around the country, not just kind of the increase in, in in testing, but the increase in actual positive cases. We're also, you know, seeing that the modeling for the death projections, as we head now into October, could likely exceed mm. 180,000. So there is still a growing fear here.
1: I feel like uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis really had his uh- George W. Bush mission accomplished moment because there's that clip that's going around of him from a couple of weeks ago saying, we beat this thing.
3: Yeah, look, you know, well, not only is, is Ron DeSantis kind of facing that criticism, so too is the vice president over the weekend when he said that the U.S. has flattened the curve despite the fact that that curve is essentially vertical right now. Uh, but when you're looking at Florida, when it has had, you know, upwards of 30,000 cases in less than a week in one state, uh, what you're hearing from the governor is that it's young people's fault. It's Barr's fault for serving so many young people. What you're not hearing from the governor is it could potentially be my administration's fault for rushing too quickly to get things reopened again because that's what the president wanted. And I think that's where we're hearing uh, some of those frustrations from state residents that administrations, at least at the governor level, are not actively taking a responsibility to say, oops, we might have made a mistake here. We have to figure out how to fix this going forward.
1: And what is the word from the White House on this? Because these were states that the White House was really getting behind saying, wow, look at all the great state of Texas and the great state of Florida doing all this.
3: Yeah. And look, over the weekend and over the last few days, we've even seen in Texas, obviously a Trump stronghold, or at least trying to remain a Trump stronghold, uh, the president was kind of pushing back on Governor Abbott, who has actively started to roll back those moving forward phases. Uh, and the president uh, kind of, you know, e- e- you know, tweeted in and around uh, by saying, "We're not going to be closing back down again." The U.S. has just a few embers of coronavirus, as he likes to call them, and that it's going to be put out quickly. Again, failing to take a, a kind of an active acknowledgement that the United States is not in a good position right now. Uh, when you have 125,000 people dead, that's terrifying. But when you could reach 180,000 and you're looking at forty and 50,000 new cases every single day, you're back to basically where you were at the beginning of March.
1: Well, they, But the White House has also been saying since late February, we've got this thing under control. It's, and it's clear now that they don't. It's clear now that they don't. And
3: it also shows that the president was wrong when he talked about the more tests you have, the more positive cases you have. It may be true that there are more positive cases, but they're far higher than what they should be. Uh, and when the president says that we're getting things under control, uh, the only thing that's under control uh, is the spread of this virus being out of control and the information uh, about the spread uh, is out of control. You know, there's just a conflict of conversation happening at the White House, and it really is creating a dangerous situation now across the country.
1: So now you've got these government- Saying, okay, we're going to shut down the bars, uh, any places that kind of serve alcohol like that. Is that going to be enough? Well, I mean, look, there's a couple of reasons for the reason that they're doing that. You know,
3: in Florida, they're saying we're going to stop the bars from serving alcohol, but they're not going to stop people from going inside. You know, it's hard to see how a bar is going to you know, yeah. survive that. But really, they're doing that so that the bars don't shut down and go back on state assistance because the state's not shutting them down. So they're they're, they're kind of working around the system here, but it's not going to stop things. In Arizona, we saw over the weekend with temperatures soaring, uh, people were just gathering at local watering holes to go out tubing and go out swimming. Uh, it is a younger population of the country. Country that's simply saying, look, we don't feel uh, that this is any kind of threat to us. There were people over the weekend in their early 20s saying that they just weren't bothered at the fact that cases were rising and they intend to fully continue to go out. Uh, there are calls that the only way to stop this is to
1: fully go back into a shutdown. And it's likely not going to happen at least coast to coast. That's a nightmare, though. Like, you know, you got it spreading among the younger population and they still don't care.
3: No, and the and, and the problem is is this goes back to that that conversation that the country was having back in March and April that the older population is still the most vulnerable and at risk, and if you have soaring numbers between you know ages 25 and 34, there's a risk for them to bring that home. There's a risk for them to bring that to extended members of their family who may be at a vulnerable age or in a vulnerable health condition, uh, which is why there's a fear that these numbers, as bad as they are right now, could possibly get worse as we head into the depths of summer.
1: Now, Houston's in a bad spot in particular isn't it? That's like where the largest medical center in the United States is. And from what I understand is their, their hospital beds are 100%.
3: Yeah. And that's that's a rising problem now across a number of states, not just in Texas. We're seeing that in Florida. In Arizona, they're at 87% capacity. Even in places like California, they're seeing their capacity for ICU beds on the plus side of 60 and towards 70%. This is a problem that New York went through. This is something that uh, health experts around the country have said, you saw what happened in the epicenter in New York City when hospitals were overwhelmed and death started to get out of control. Uh, This is a possibility now in smaller cities where they simply don't have that uh, capacity to have that many people in a hospital if their numbers are getting uh, growing this much, which is why there's still a further call on the White House to enact some kind of policy that is going to put Americans' lives, uh, or at least uh, make American lives a little more safer.
1: Well, we'll see. Reggie, thank you. Thank you. Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Here's the scary part, though, like because it's all scary, but the fact that younger people in those particular states aren't that concerned about it because they think, oh, they're just going to get like a mild version of it and who cares? It's like the common cold. The long-term effects though of having COVID-19, even if it's a weak version of it, still aren't fully understood or fully explored. Remember Rudy Gobert? Remember that name? He was the first NBA player to be diagnosed with COVID-19. Remember the guy who was touching all the microphones at the press conference and making fun of it? And then the whole season got shut down because of him, because he tested positive. He spoke with a, a French newspaper. He is french uh, the other day and he said that his sm- his sense of taste has come back but his sense of smell still hasn't returned and the doctors told him it could take up to a year for that to happen and he didn't even have a severe case of it at all so the, the side effects of this thing are what we fully don't know about yet
0: this is mornings with simi
1: Well, housing has been a huge issue, both before and during the pandemic. During the pandemic, for renters in particular, it was an issue because if you had difficulty paying your rent, what was going to happen? What kind of protections were they? And many people felt better knowing that at least for a little while, they could not be evicted from their homes. Well, that is now changing for many people. Uh, Two seniors are about to lose their homes in the West End as the deadline for their eviction now approaches. It's Berkeley Tower. It's the green residential building, one of the ones that overlooks English Bay. And the owners would like to renovate that aging structure. So what rights do people have when that could be about to happen to them? Joining us now is Sue Robinette from the Vancouver Tenants Union. Sue, thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me. So what is going on here? How long have these seniors known that this might be an issue?
4: Um, uh, I believe it was late 2017 that uh, the article first came into the paper that this was uh, going to happen. And then um, over time, the tenants got some information kind of trickling in about the intentions. There was some um, talk from the developer that maybe they would do the building in Stages, So some people could stay and, you know, for a period of time while others would move out. And, you know, um, there was a lot of a lot of different ideas over the years of what was going to happen.
1: And so where are they at right now? Is that what happened or did something different happen? Yeah, um,
4: now the the developer changed plans and just wants everybody out at once.
1: Hmm. OK, so have most people moved out? Where do they stand on that?
4: Yeah, yeah. And this is something that we see um, oftentimes in run eviction cases is, you know, um, oftentimes the whole building is outraged and they, they want to fight back, you know, um, and understandably so. But then people who have um, the means are, you know, the, the they might hate it, but they're going to end up just leaving and paying double the rent somewhere else or leaving the city or, or what have you. But the people who are the most vulnerable are the ones that really don't have any options. They just can't go ahead and say, oh, you know, what the heck, I'll just pay more. Right.
1: <laughs> and those are the people that are left behind. And so now you've got a few people, a few tenants left in that building, though they were supposed to be out by March 31st, right? Um, well, with the...
4: Um, with the... Um, the pandemic? Eviction, yeah. Uh, yeah with the eviction moratorium that was put in place um, and also an extension that was granted by the developer um, the tenants kind of didn't really know when this was going to end but um the the fact is is that the remaining tenants were depending on the city's policy to protect them at this point because um having lost the case um at the RTB Tribunal, which is a provincial body. Mm. Um, The tenants were kind of depending on the city to step up and enforce the policy of the tenant relocation and protection policy. So that's what the tenants um, have
1: been depending on. And does that look like help is coming on that front? Or what's going on?
4: Well, that's, that's really the, the unfortunate part. And that's that's why we're we're sort of trying to call upon the city to do the right thing because what uh, council has passed is a tenant relocation and protection policy, and the uh, the purpose of this policy, of course, is to protect tenants and you know in the face of of development. Um. So the the relocation is what these tenants are really after, and the tenants have. Over the years, been speaking with the city. They've gone into multiple meetings, um, and the city's kind of assured them that this was something that they can depend on. It's something that is real. It's something that mm-hmm. that is uh, a viable option. And then these um, remaining tenants haven't received these uh, relocation options that they are needing. And the developer has all of this uh, stock within you know a block away from their their units. Um, that's just sitting empty and um they're just it's not coming to them for whatever reason
1: so you're saying the developer could move them into another property but they're not the, the people who are left behind aren't getting any help that's right yeah okay so what has happened like right now for renters sue has the situation gotten any better we've been hearing anecdotally about potentially some rents falling in some areas what have you been hearing um yeah. I mean, I, I don't think
4: people are going to be moving out of the units that they have to save money and move in somewhere else, right? Because the 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 unit that you have now is going to be cheaper than anything else that's out there on the
1: market. Right. So it's not good enough that it's going to help these people.
4: No, <laughs> no, because they're paying um, below market rent. Like if uh, one tenant has been living there for 27 years. So, you know, uh, rents have, you know, gone up and up and up since that time. So because of rent control, you know, those are, um, are going to be cheaper suites than anything that you're going to see going on in the market. And that's really what it is, is the developer has just been sending them um, ads, Craigslist ads, and saying, oh, here
1: you go, this will do. <laughs> right.
4: And of course, they can't afford them. So what tools are left for them at this point? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, we're just hoping that the city um, is able to step in and do the right thing the developer will work with the city
1: and you know hopefully take care of these remaining tenants. We'll see what happens. Sue, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Let's see Robinette, an advocate with the Vancouver Tenants Union. Uh, talking about Berkeley Tower. This has been ongoing for a couple of years. Uh, they're overlooking kind of English Bay, the 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 owner of it, the developer, wants everybody to move out. They said it's a three-year renovation project. But in the meantime, you've got a, a couple of tenants left, some seniors who don't have anywhere to go. They haven't been able to find a place. They want the city to help them and feel that they have not been getting the help and the support that they need in order to make that move happen. I would be curious to hear from renters out there right now about what is the situation like? How has your landlord been treating you during the pandemic? Are you getting the breaks? Are you not getting the breaks are you thinking about moving what's happening email me simmy at cknw.com
0: this is mornings with simi
1: and we've been closely, of course, following the numbers for COVID-19 right here in BC. And we know that door in Alberta, they've also been doing a very good job in tackling this. They have a couple of problem spots, one of them in Calgary. So what is going on there? What kind of system does Alberta use? It's a little bit different than what we do here in BC to monitor situations like this. So we're checking in with Matthew Conrad this morning with Global News Calgary. Good morning, Matthew.
5: Hi, Cindy. Good morning. How are you today?
1: Good, thank you. So, what is the situation in Calgary? Are the numbers still going up there? Or there seems to be an area of concern.
5: So the numbers are still, like you said, in BC, the numbers in Alberta overall have been pretty good when you compare it to the rest of Canada. But right now on Sunday, so Alberta Health Services, they issued a watch status for a particular region in Calgary. So it's not the entire city. It's one uh, it's one region, so Calgary Centre. So that's mostly uh, in and around uh, the downtown area. And they issued this because uh, there's some elevated concern over uh, rising COVID-19 numbers. And a lot of that has to do with there was an outbreak uh, at a condo building in the East Village, which is a very densely populated area, uh, just sort of in the east part of, of downtown. So uh, basically how it works is we have three classifications of statuses based on case ratios of COVID-19. So You have open, which is what basically everywhere in the province uh, is right now. Then you have a watch and then you have enhanced. So what Orange means is that a particular region has more than 50 active cases per 100,000 people. So 50 active cases isn't a whole lot when you consider that the outbreak at the Corona building right now, there are 34 active cases. So you'd only really need 16, 17 more in and around downtown to reach that watch right. status, so that's where we're at right now. That's why they're putting some elevated uh, attention on the uh, Calgary uh, Center area. There's another region right now in Alberta that's under that watch status. There was a region in Edmonton last week. They're now back uh, to open. So that's where uh, that's where things currently stand right now in, in for the province.
1: That's interesting, then, because usually, like, usually we hear of outbreaks at long-term care homes, unfortunately. So this is just what like a regular condo building that has had this outbreak.
5: Yeah, so I'm standing just outside of it uh, this morning, uh, and it's yeah, it's it's a high-rise, a condo building, and what they believed uh, happened was that some of those high-touch areas, so handrails and elevator buttons, that's where the virus was likely spread from, and then obviously it spread from person to person, which can obviously happen very quickly, as we all know. So the outbreak was declared on the last uh, Monday, so the 22nd, and uh, since then it's uh, it's growing, uh, I guess a little bit each day uh, up to right now. There was a uh, Total of 45 cases, 11 have recovered, there's 34 active, and then uh, there's three hospitalizations right now. But uh, that's what they're doing. They're conducting some testing uh, for the residents in the building. Uh, AHS is also working with the condo management team to conduct a cleaning of the entire building, particularly those areas where they think it was spread from, so people touching elevator buttons. And then not washing your hands, which that's something that, you know, we all have to be focused on right now is our own sort of personal hygiene standard.
1: Right. And overall, when it comes to Calgary and people following the rules, Matthew, what has that been like? Are people wearing face masks? How is how is the opening up process going?
5: It's been pretty good. So um, Calgary opened back up on the 25th. We were about 10 days after the rest of the province, Edmonton. In other areas, they opened up ahead of us just because Calgary had some of those higher numbers of, of, of cases. But since then, I would say it's gone uh, pretty well. Uh, restaurants and bars have slowly started to open back up, barbershops, hair salons. There's been a sudden return to normal life or whatever you can define normal as these days. So I would say, from my opinion, I would say mostly very well. If you go to grocery stores, you will see a lot of people wearing masks at uh, restaurants, bars. Obviously, all the staff and people working there are wearing masks. I don't see too many like patrons out wearing uh, masks, but some people will be wearing gloves. I would say most Calgarians have have done a great job in in sort of limiting the spread, taking things into their own hands. But I would say most people are wearing masks, but it totally depends on, on where you go.
1: Right. So people are still, it sounds like being vigilant, though.
5: Totally. People are still being very vigilant to uh, following uh, the public health orders. Uh, I think at first there was some uh, sort of apprehension to that. People didn't want to do that, but obviously as the cases uh, started to rise, uh, people took it a lot more seriously, which is good to see, particularly the masks. I think if you are in those uh, areas where you can't have physical social distancing. That's where you want to do it. So I wear one and wear one. We have to go to the, uh, the airport. You're mandated to wear one in there. Now grocery stores, you're recommended to wear one. Basically, If you can wear one, go ahead and wear it. Obviously, it's not possible in some areas, but anytime you can wear a mask, uh, the province uh, government and the Alberta Health Services is is encouraging you to wear a mask as often as you can and keep washing your hands. That's the big one as well.
1: So here in BC, we're talking about traveling now within the province, right? People going on Mm -hmm. vacation, perhaps traveling to other communities. Where is Alberta at with that?
5: It's kind of touch and go. I mean, at first it was it was recommended that you don't have any sort of travel uh, too far in around the province, or even to go to other parts. um, You know, to go over to sort of the inner parts of the you know BC Valley and all that. So it is touch and go. I think if things are starting to loosen back up, uh, campgrounds are now beginning to open, so people are starting to you know venture out of you know the sort of the city centers, uh, Edmonton, uh, Calgary, to go to sort of out to the mountains, Canmore, Banff. Uh, do some camping. So things are definitely starting to loosen up. Um, I don't think there's this wide encouragement to just sort of go and do a whole bunch of traveling, get out and about and do all of that. But things are definitely starting to loosen up. And I think that's that's helped people with sort of just their overall morale during this time it's been all very difficult for people anywhere all over the yeah. country staying home and spending so much time isolated so things are definitely starting to loosen up where we can travel in and around the province but um certainly you know not to spend time in, in big groups of people not to spend time with people outside of your cohort, your sort of your bubble family the ones that you're spending uh, most of your time with so things are loosening up each week and the restrictions are kind of uh like I said, getting a little bit looser, yeah. but it's still going to be a little bit while until, uh, you know, we're encouraged to take on travel, right?
1: That is. All right, Matthew, thank you. You're welcome. That's Matthew Conrad with Global News at Calgary, talking about a particular area of Calgary that is under a, a watch situation. It's a condo building that has had an outbreak of COVID-19 cases, uh, so the numbers are being kind of inflated by that, and they are closely watching that. You know how we talked about people not wanting, being very apprehensive of seeing license plates from other places you know border communities between bc and alberta have been dealing with this well i read a story over the weekend that pei prince edward island is also seeing this now people not happy when they see nova scotia plates there or new brunswick plates there because they worry about the same thing they've kept it under control they want to keep it that way found a way in simi at cknw.com
0: this is mornings with simi
1: well, we're all looking for things to do these days, right? Kids out of school, parents probably have some vacation this summer. Where are you going to take them? Well, there is some help for you out in Surrey if you are looking for something to do because outdoor swimming pools are go- are now open. So let's talk more about that. We're joined by Communication and Recreation Services Manager in city in the City of Surrey, Jeff Holland. Jeff, thanks for being here.
6: Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me on the show.
1: So are is it just the outdoor pools that are open at this point?
6: Yes, we've opened four of our outdoor pools this past Saturday, and we have four more opening coming this coming Saturday.
1: Okay, but there must be some new rules in place.
6: Certainly, yeah. We've been um, following clear guidelines that have been laid out by the BC and Yukon Lifesaving Society for safe operations. Um, so we have uh, safe rescue and first aid protocols by the staff and uh, new personal protective equipment for the lifeguards. We're pro- following all provincial health and work-safe guidelines, and we work closely with Fraser Health as well, but for our operations specifically, we're reducing our capacity to 20% of our normal usage. And we have limited use of the showers to minimize contact points. We've made sure all the lifeguards are equipped with the proper PPE. And we are asking that our clients physically distance from their family, except in their family groups.
1: Okay, so you, are you going to have to limit the numbers too? So does that mean if certain time in the morning, if it's full up, it is just full up? That's it?
6: Yeah, people can uh, put their name down on the list and, and sign up for a later swim if they show up in there and it's full. We're letting in about twenty to thirty people, and we we have forty five minute swim sessions to allow for more people to access the facilities.
1: Okay, so you're, so that's it. They have forty five minutes, and after that, you'd like them to kind of move on.
6: Yes, yes, certainly. We ask that they again move out quickly and uh, towel off and head out to the park and uh, and let the next group in.
1: Okay, so then Jeff, how is this going to be managed then? And right now, are you still just looking at outdoor pools?
6: Yeah, currently our focus um, is on the outdoor pools. We're taking a, a cautious approach to reopening. Um, we want to make sure that we provide that safe, enjoyable experience outdoors this summer. We're working on reopening plans for our indoor facilities as well. And we'll work through our protocols and, and reassess that in the coming weeks to ensure we're, um, um, that we're safe and, and, and working well with the public.
1: Oh, and how is this going to be monitored then? Do you have more staff on hand to check this out? If there's any kind of a problem then, can you see this uh, yeah, we have um,
6: park, park attendants that come in too as well. Our, um, we have our community safety patrol that comes by the parks to ensure that the, that the staff needs any support. And um, and we do have additional staffing on to ensure that we can um, have a good chat with all the families about social distancing, that people will meet with them prior to swimming and, and ask them some screening questions and make sure they're well prepared for the experience.
1: No, I loved outdoor pools when I was growing up in Surrey. So which ones are we talking about here?
6: Okay, so for the four that are open right now are Quantum Pool, George Road Pool, Bear Creek Pool, and Greenaway Outdoor Pool, and t- this coming Saturday we'll be opening up Sunnyside Outdoor Pool, Unwin Outdoor Pool, Port Kells Outdoor Pool, and Holly. Okay, Holly
1: Pool as well. great list. Thank you so much for that, Jeff.
6: Great, thank you, Simi.
1: That is Jeff Holland, Community and Recreation Services Manager from the City of Surrey. I say great, great list because Greenway Pool and Sunnyside Pool is where I swam in the summers when I was a kid. Uh, nice to see they're still there and still opening up for the public. Uh, so that's something for people to do. But keep in mind the rules there that Jeff Holland was saying: got to put your name down. You go in there. If it's full, you can come back later. But forty-five minutes, even if you do get in when they, you know, when you first show up, they're asking you to stay for about forty-five minutes. Go for a swim, towel off, and then give other people a chance to get in there and have a good time. So they are limiting the space out there.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, I can't really think about traveling down to the U.S. Going to another province uh, It's kind of sketchy right now. Not sure we're supposed to be doing that, but... That means that there's lots of options for us right here in BC. And that is what we are being encouraged to do. Find a place. But good luck because many of them are booking up. I've been keeping track of uh, some of the hot spots out there. And yeah, that's and that's great news for those businesses. But we want to make a lot of more suggestions for you. So joining us now is Maya Lang with Destination BC. Good morning, Maya. Good morning. It sounds like people have really taken this message to heart about traveling in BC. Would you agree with that? Yeah,
7: I think we're seeing lots of uh, bookings and and people starting to to plan uh, to plan their travel for the summer. So yeah, I think things are now that we're officially in phase three. I think people are are quite excited
1: to get out and explore BC this summer. All right. So are there special deals for BC residents, or we just go to anywhere essentially?
7: Well, I think, uh, phase three now officially we're allowed to travel BC wide, so we can get out of our communities and, and finally go and explore some other, some other places around BC. So, uh, there are, um, what we're encouraging British Columbians to do is to, uh, start planning, um, and booking some travel. You can do that through our website at explorebc.com. If you're looking for deals or you're looking for, you know, um, Uh, you know, some other things to do, you can contact the businesses directly. Um, Some of them I know are offering deals, but uh, I think there's also, you mentioned at at the outset that there's lots of hotspots that are filling up, but we have a big province, so there's lots to see and do, and and although the hotspots may be filling up sort of on the weekends, there's lots of opportunity midweek, or of course, um, you know, the further you get maybe out to some of the other places around BC, there's still lots and lots available.
1: Right. And I guess we should also remind people here, Maya, is that this isn't just no, no rules or anything like that going out there. You really do have to still respect those communities that you're going to and remember the rules.
7: Yeah, that's right. And in fact, we're encouraging BC residents to what we're calling know before you go. So, you know, have uh, and we've provided actually some tips on our website on how to travel safely and responsibly this summer. So that's at explorebc.com. But, you know, little things like, you know, doing extra planning, calling the businesses ahead of time to make sure you know what to expect, that you're comfortable with the health and safety measures being put into place, that you pack a travel kit with a mask and hand sanitizers and so on, Um, you know, that you still, you know, remain, you know, or be aware of, of being physically distant from, from people. So yeah, there's, um, as I said, there's a, a great article on our website on explorebc.com, but yeah, just using good, um, good, you know, good practices, um, health and safety practices and, and hand hygiene and so on kind of the basics that we're expecting everyone to, uh, to adhere to.
1: Right. And do you, is this going to really make a difference? Do you think for businesses out there? Oh, absolutely. Um, just to provide some context, in 2019,
7: it was a 21 billion dollar industry in British Columbia. Tourism was a is a or was a 21 billion dollar industry in in 2019. In 2020, um, based on the BC Restart Plan and the scenario planning that we've been putting together, looks like it's going to be about a seven billion dollar industry. So. You know, 166,000 people were employed um, in tourism last year, and that's going to drop by about two-thirds this year. So lots of people are hurting, businesses are hurting, communities are hurting. So, you know, there's an opportunity for us BC residents to get out and explore our province and to do our part
1: Okay. as well. And what is that website one more time? ExploreBC.com. All right, we'll check it out. Maya, thank
0: you. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi
1: we have a pretty long list of elective surgeries that the province needs to catch up on because remember we paused those to make sure that the hospital system could keep up with COVID-19 cases. And so now we're trying to catch up doing the best that we can. But I was thinking about this and I thought, well, this must be pretty challenging because I like many other people out there have had cataract eye surgery. And if you remember the process a lot of people around when you go in there, right? The morning that you have your surgery, uh, you're in a waiting room with a whole bunch of other people sitting very close together. And it's just, it's very kind of intensive in terms of how many people are around. How are they dealing with situations like that? Well, turns out that the patient care manager at Mount St. Joseph Hospital is joining us now, Christy Carpenter, to talk about what they have come up with for situations like this. Christy, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I actually had my surgeries at Mount Joseph. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> yeah, so I know exactly how tight that kind of waiting room is there. So how are you dealing with these situations?
8: Yeah, that was one of the biggest challenges that we uh, were facing with the restart. It was easy to turn off uh, when we were told to stop doing procedures, but then we had to figure out how we were going to to manage that. And um, as you said, our, our waiting room used to have t- uh, 20 chairs in it. And we're only allowed to have four in it now with the new social distancing. So um, we had to come up with some creative ways um, to manage it. And we found a a restaurant paging system on Amazon. And uh, we uh, bring the patients in and... Once we um, decide that they're either going to come straight into the OR, that's fine. But if they're if they're early or if we're running behind, then we send them out to their cars with the pager, and we call them when we're ready. So then we avoid them sitting around uh, and being too many people in the small space.
1: Okay, that's genius. So you mm-hmm. give them essentially like you're waiting for a table, one of those black pagers, and it'll yeah. the red lights will turn on and it'll buzz when it's their turn. Yeah.
8: It's super easy. And it was um, a challenge because our patients are elderly and visually impaired. So it was um, a challenge to find our system. They, one, one system was uh, suggested that we use a, a cell phone paging texting system. And I said, well, that's not going to work yeah. with our clientele. So,
1: so do so you know of anywhere else where they're doing it this way?
8: Um, at MSJ, there's, we're doing it in, uh, Emerge is using it as well and surgical daycare. So they've, um, all, we've all started using it and it's working really well because our hospital is quite small. It's, you know, an old hospital, so it's not built for this kind of, uh,
1: need. So how do you do that, that the part in the beginning in the morning, like before the actual, um, surgical daycare opens at 7am or whatever it is, I find that people always congregate outside, right? Mm -hmm. Waiting to come in. How do you deal with that part?
8: Well, that was actually a a challenge. In the past, we would say, um, tell the patients, come two hours before your surgery. And that was sort of open to interpretation. You know, some people were being extra keen and they'd show up three hours ahead of time. um, Or else we'd have um, at seven in the morning when we were opening the doors, we'd just say, oh, the first um, nine patients come on at nine and we'll just get you in. So we're now giving them specific times.
1: Okay, that works way better then, right? And so you're asking yeah, people as well exactly. to just wait outside because you've got to give them the pager somehow.
8: Yeah, so they come in, and um, because we don't have um, a pile of patients in the room, we can have them come in, we get their name, find out where they are in the list, and then make sure that um, we know, we give them the pager and make sure we know what timing we're going to be telling them. We'll say, you know, we'll be calling yeah. you in about 10 minutes or half an hour. Um,
1: I like and, this. Yeah. I, I li- and how are the patients reacting to this?
8: They actually are really happy about it. They're, they um, appreciate not being crammed into a room. Um, mm-hmm. I think um, it's much more comfortable for them to be outside or in their car, um, quietly waiting versus being crammed into a, a waiting room with 20 other people yeah. and their families. So
1: Now, Kirstie, did I hear you correctly that you said you went on Amazon and you bought the system?
8: Yes. <laughs> yeah. we. I uh, tried to source it through the hospital, and it was very expensive. And then um, we were just laughing and saying, oh, let's look at Amazon. And sure enough, there it was. So, wow. And so all of us here have bought them off of Amazon.
1: That's fantastic. So have you gotten any phone calls from any other places that are thinking, hey, what are you guys doing? That sounds like a good idea. Um, no. <laughs> they should. No, I haven't had it Yeah, <laughs> Right. So we're does lucky. that mean that every hospital yeah. is dealing with it slightly differently?
8: Yeah. Yeah, and it also depends on your space. Um, we're fortunate um, the procedure room is right beside a parking lot, the entrance, uh, all on the same level. So it's easy to, you know, have the flow. I think it would be much more difficult if your unit was, um, you know, on the top floor and you had to take elevators and right. back and forth. So everybody has their own challenges and, and have to figure out how to to work it themselves, right?
1: Well, I love the use of creativity. Uh, Kirstie, thank you so much for joining us.
8: No worries. Thank you for having
1: me. That is Kirsty Carpenter, patient care manager at Providence Healthcare at Mount St. Joseph's Hospital. They have found a unique way of dealing with the flow of patients, which can get very busy. They have a surgical uh, day center there, and I, I've been there twice And to deal with that, to have cataract surgery, and it gets very busy. Tons of people crammed in there, and they're giving them those restaurant pagers, the kind that you get if you're going to a restaurant. They order them off Amazon And they said it's working great, which I think I love it when you see things like that, making things faster and less stressful for the patients too, which is a good thing.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: A lot of pressure on the Prime Minister to do something to help free the two Michaels in China. China has suggested that if Canada were to release Meng Wanzhou, they would release Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. And there has been pressure from former diplomats, former politicians as well to the Prime Minister saying that is what Canada should do. Prime Minister has said that he has no intention of doing that. But how do Canadians feel about this? Joining us now to talk more about that is Shachi Curl from the Angus Reid Institute. They have done some survey work on this. Good morning, Shachi. Good morning, Simi. So what is it that you were asking Canadians?
9: Well, we put the question to them. You know, imagine yourself in a scenario where you're advising the PM, you're advising the federal government. What would you advise them to do? Would you say... Look, let this situation continue to play out in the courts as it has done since um, Ms. Mung's arrest back in uh, December 2018. Or intervene, make it a political issue, and, uh, and affect, uh, basically, her deportation back to China in order to get the Michaels back. And, you know, last week, Cindy, we saw a great deal of pressure, as you mentioned, on the Trudeau government to do the second thing, as opposed to the first thing, especially given the very moving and eloquent interviews that were given by the family yeah. of one of the Michaels. Uh, but uh, 72% of Canadians say, no, hold tight. This thing should be decided in the courts. Do not intervene politically, even if it means uh, that the Michaels are, are in China for longer. This is not something we should be uh, intervening on uh, politically. And that uh, is something that is remarkably consistent across the political spectrum. One of the biggest divisions of opinion in this country on any issue really depends on
1: what your political preference yeah. is on this Mm -mm. remarkable consistency. Well, I bet that doesn't happen very often when you ask people a question. No, it doesn't. So you, you
9: still have uh, more than 25% of Canadians saying, uh, look, send Hmong home. It doesn't matter what we have to do, use whatever political uh, 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 mechanisms that we have in order to just get her out of prison, get her home, affect the swap. But... uh, but across the board, I think what you're seeing now is 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 a resolve in the minds and the hearts of Canadians across the country. Obviously, not affected. Obviously, not at the center of this. It's not their loved one who's who's sitting basically without yeah. due process in a Chinese prison. So we acknowledge that, but. Uh, but Canadians are saying, look, the precedent here uh, is just too dangerous. Uh, if, we, if we agree to what is in effect a swap for, uh, between Meng and the Michaels uh, today, what stops another hostile country, Russia perhaps, or, or another one from just saying, hey, there's a Canadian doing some aid work or some legal work or, or studying or simply traveling abroad. Let's go detain them.
1: Right. I think that's exactly how people sum that up, too. Well, thank you so much, Shachi, for your time. Thanks for having me, Simi. Shachi Curl from the Angus Reid Institute. Some other interesting findings from that poll. But when the one place, so overwhelmingly, Canadians say they support the government's take on this, that we should not be trading anything to release the two Michaels. However, much closer when it comes to asking Canadians whether we should have arrested Meng Wanzhou in the first place. Uh, Nothing has changed on that front. 50% of Canadians say the arrest was the right move and 50% say it should have been avoided. Also interesting here, four out of five Canadians, 81% say that consumers in this country should boycott Chinese made goods in response to the detainment of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. More to come on that today. Those results just released from the Angus Reed Institute.